You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So, what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession Is Everyone Wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette DeClerc, David Rosenberg, Peter Zihan, Pierre Anderan, and many more, to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in depth, long form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. And best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession Is Everyone Wrong for just $1. Yep, $1. So head over to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, May 11th. I'm Maggie Lake, and here with me is Darius Dow, founder and CEO of 42 Macro. Uh, and we are dealing with another choppy day, and you're going to see Ash Bennington's with us again, but we're going to wait to get to him. I want to start with Darius um, and the inflation data. And Darius, we're actually ending the U.S. session for equities, sort of heading into the lows again, uh, which is pretty ugly looking. And the market seemed like it really had a really hard time deciding how to digest this CPI number, the monthly CPI number we got. What, what were you watching? What stood out to you? Yeah, there's a couple things that stood out to me, and it's the same thing that's been standing out to me really for the past kind of six months, which is the annualized momentum of the time series and all the various key components of the time series continue to trend in an adverse manner as it relates to the Fed's reaction function and ultimately the market's response to that. Um, I'll give you three quick numbers. Um, 7.5%, that's the rate of uh, the annualized rate of change, the three-month momentum uh, in, in core services inflation. That's taken the baton from goods inflation, which slowed to 0.8% on an annualized basis. Uh, that's the fastest number we've seen since August of 1990. Um, and then uh, number two, I give you sticky CPI. Uh, that accelerated to 4.9% year over year. Uh, doesn't really matter. I don't care about the year over year. The three-month annualized uh, barely slowed, only 10 basis points, still tracking at about 6.5%. And then uh, median CPI uh, slowed 20 basis points to 6.2%, just off an all-time high. So, you know, on an, annuali- on an annualized basis, sticky CPI, median CPI, services, core, core services CPI, all the things that feed directly into core PCE, the Fed's preferred inflation metrics, are continuing to misbehave and run well above, uh, orders of magnitude above the Fed's target. This is terrible. This is terrible sounding, Darius, even though you made it sound nice. Um, this this is, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so talk to me about why equities didn't tank right out of the gate, though. That was interesting. They looked like they were, you know, we popped around for a while. Um, maybe the true sentiment is coming here at the end of the day, but it looked like somebody was trying to step in and stabilize this. Was it technical in nature? Were people really trying to decide, you know, what does this mean and sort of play out the scenario, you know, in terms of Fed policy? What did it feel like to you? Yeah, so so uh, I'll be, be frank. I, I don't feel anything. It's all math and it's all data. 
Um, so the initial response to the, the to the print was really just the fact that it's it confirmed the anticipated slowdown. So that's positive number one. Um, we're now moving in the right direction as it relates to uh, you know kind of get helping the Fed take its uh, foot off the brake. Uh, but then when you actually kind of dig through the math, through the numbers, you know, it's not like you know the the data comes out you know already you know manipulated into annualized time series and momentum, et cetera. You know, folks like myself have to actually go in there and and take the raw data and manipulate it. And I think once people like myself you know, updated their models, updated the charts. It got worse throughout the day. And this is something we, we flagged uh, heading into the week. You know, this week, it's very unusual to see such weakness in the equity market and have it still persist with an implied volatility discount. And what I mean by that is the the sort of price, the implied volatility of, of, of 30 day, you know, or sort of near term put options relative to a near to a re recent volatility. That's been the case. That's been persistent all week, even though we've had such, you know, some big smackdowns uh, from a price perspective. And it tells you that investors are very, they were very sanguine. They're very complacent about their support. And obviously the report did not behave in, in, in that manner. Uh, Ten-year yield uh, w rose above three percent, but turned right back around uh, two point nine one percent. Yeah, no, I mean, look, this is the bond market is starting to sniff out. Um, really, and this is the first week we've really seen this price action. The bond market is starting to sniff out the transition from what we call inflation. Um, that's where growth is decelerating and inflation is accelerating to where we what we call deflation. That's where both growth and inflation are decelerating. Um, you typically have. Uh, both are risk off, but from the perspective of asset markets, uh, but you typically have risk off and sort of inverse covariance between stocks and bonds uh, in the latter regime. And so uh, we seem like we're on the precipice of that. Um, and ultimately, the bond market is actually looking forward to the Fed keeping its foot on the brake for longer, slowing the economy faster and potentially transitioning from a soft-ish landing, uh, to quote my friend JP uh, last week, to something that looks like a not so soft landing and ultimately i think we're headed for something that may look like a hard landing if the data continues to behave the way it's currently behaving yeah and i heard a lot of people saying that that, inf that this inflation read made that soft landing which is hard anyway and the fed has a mm -hmm. terrible track record at it even harder now i mean it se seemed to reduce the likelihood of that would you agree yeah love one quick stat for you i got this from uh Either Lisa Shallot at Morgan Stanley or, or, or Kathy Jones at Schwab. I figured I was listening to. My apologies uh, to both of you. Um, uh, the let the Fed is of uh, the fourteen tightening cycles we've had in the post-war era, eleven of them have ended in recession. Yeah. And the last time we've seen a soft landing got to go all the way back nearly you know twenty five thirty years to ninety four. Employment rate was six and a half percent at the beginning of that uh, hiking cycle. Employment rate was uh, ten and a half percent at the beginning of the eighty four tightening cycle, where those were two the last two soft landings. We started this tightening cycle at a three handle on the unemployment rate. It's a pipe dream. It was a pipe dream at best to think that we were going to get a soft landing. And I think the data, uh, which is what we specialize in at 42 Macro, analyzing and projecting the data, the data continues to tell us that the probability is, is actually shrinking, not, 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 going, I've got, not improving. Yeah, uh, we. I want to bring Ash in. We, so we're we're dealing with volatility, a uh, big story developing on inflation. At the same time, layered on that, Ash, we continue to see this story about terror kind of reverberate through the crypto community. What's the latest there? Yeah, we sure do. Uh, the latest is that uh, Terra is an ecosystem. There are multiple parts of it. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but here's your headline, uh, which is Terra USD, sometimes called UST. This is a so-called algorithmic stablecoin. The peg has broken. The price 
has blown out. Uh, it's extremely volatile. This was trading as low as 30 cents on the dollar earlier. Uh, looks like now we're at up a little bit, about 66 cents on the dollar. Uh, but this is supposed to remain pegged uh, at $1. So any decline on this that goes below that breaks the buck uh, is considered a significant and, in fact, ugly event. Yeah, so Ash, why why is it such a big deal, right? Because we know there are all these different coins and, you know, for a lot of people who may be listening, you know, they might have a little money in some of them, probably most of it's in Bitcoin right. or ETH, but but this just seemed like some of the headlines and articles that we're reading, you know, there's a grave level of concern. Why is this a bigger deal than maybe just that particular stable coin? Yeah, that's that's really the key question that you just hit on there, Maggie. Uh, and the answer is because this is meant to be pegged. This is meant to be fixed. And it shows that there are weaknesses uh, potentially in the market. I mentioned this yesterday. I think it was trading at about 90 cents uh, when I said that it was a science experiment and the test tubes were blowing up. Uh, sometimes you just get lucky. Uh, but look, the reality here is there is fear of liquidation of Bitcoin. Now, to date, uh, we haven't seen anything that looks catastrophic in Bitcoin. I'm looking right now uh, on my monitor, 29,311 on uh, Bitcoin. Uh, if you look at that over a one-day chart, yeah, it's down about, uh, well, let's say it's, call it 6.5% uh, on a price basis. Uh, reality is this is a very volatile asset class, 6.5%, not catastrophic. But the fear uh, is that there might have been some liquidation uh, to cover uh, the cost, essentially, to try and rebalance this peg. Uh, we haven't seen panic selling yet uh, in Bitcoin, uh, but it is something that, of course, we are watching. Yeah. I mean, listen, it, and it, it begs the question, it has to, whether you were talking about something happening in the crypto world, if it was a, a fund blowing up in the traditional finance world, we would be saying, well, if it happened to them, who next? Could it be right. someone else next? And what does that mean? That's always the fear, isn't it? The contagion fear. And I know that right. in, in some of the articles we've been sharing around, people are bringing this up, asking, is it is this crypto's Lehman moment? Is it their Bear Stern moment? And I know there are very strong opinions on both sides of that, but mm. that's sort of the level of discussion that's happening, at least in some places. What about regular regulators? I mean, they've they've got to be seeing this. What are we seeing on that front? Oh, yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is something that Janet Yellen brought up uh, in testimony before the Senate Banking Committee yesterday. We're hearing rumblings uh, uh, out of the uh, European regulators that there's potential regulation around stablecoins. Uh, I was just hitting those headlines coming in. What's coming out of Europe uh, sounds much more expansive in terms of the regulatory push that we might be seeing uh, in the euro area, uh, indeed in the EU, uh, in terms of the push to regulate stablecoins. Look, Ultimately, I suspect that we do get some regulation uh, because, look, these really look like look, feel, smell, taste like banking products, right? Mm -hmm. If you're depositing something uh, and you're expecting to get it uh, back at par, that sounds a lot like a banking product. Uh, very often, uh, some of the yield farming products look like the attempt at, at, at generating interest-bearing accounts. I suspect that we are going to see regulators, uh, just not a prediction, but this is something to look for, looking to regulators to say, hey, Look, if you're creating things that look like banking products, they feel like banking products, why aren't they being regulated like banking products? Not saying I agree or disagree, but I think that is the direction that this is going, Maggie. Yeah, and the question will be, is that accelerated? Is that conversation accelerated now that we see what's going on? We have seen a little bit of, of, of spillover because we know some fintech names, some exposure to blockchain have been down. Coinbase has been getting hit. They've had to come out. And they came out with an interesting headline as well, didn't they, um, about people who have accounts. I mean, what do we know there? 
Yeah. So so basically, this uh, story that was a statement by Coinbase saying, uh, in the event of a bankruptcy, uh, the the customers uh, may become general creditors. Uh, that is not something you want to hear if you're a customer. Uh, if you are a customer of a, a traditional uh, broker dealer, there's something called SIPIC. Uh, there's protection in the case of insolvency of the broker dealer, uh, and you get your money back for the securities. Effectively, the statement, at least as I read it, as people are, I think are talking about it and thinking about it, is the fear uh, that people who have their accounts may become general creditors in a bankruptcy proceeding. That's something that nobody ever wants to hear. Right. And again, we'll no doubt spark that conversation around regulation. Uh, so so much developing on this story. And I think it's so important. Um, Ash, you're going to be doing a, a Twitter spaces at 430 at the bottom of the hour all about this, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, that's right. That's going to be the deep dive. That's going to be the nerd fest. Uh, we've got Jim Bianco, Santiago Velez, and Mike Rogers, who are scheduled to join us uh, at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time, immediately following the conclusion of Real Vision Daily Briefing today, Maggie. All right, fantastic. So if any of you have crypto in your portfolio, if it's something you're watching, something you're concerned about, as soon as we wrap up here, you can pop over to Twitter and check that out with Ash. Ash, thank you for popping in again. Appreciate it. Uh, and we know you're going to be all over this. Thanks, Maggie. And come in and say hello, everyone. <laughs> I, I'm definitely going to join you, man. This is the biggest story on the tape right now. Darius, you're welcome as well. Appreciate you too, it. Maggie. Uh, yeah, I, I will. I will. <laughs> thanks, Ash. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks so much. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So we got to dive back in here because, um, Darius, I think this, you know, this is. These things tend to happen when it's not helpful when it's already a volatile situation. People are already getting killed on other things in their portfolio. And then you see this area that, you know, people were feeling good about. There was innovation. And now something like this happens. I mean, does that just going to sort of feed into the feeling uncertainty? Are you worried about contagion spillover? Uh, no, I wouldn't say worried. We're, we're sitting pretty here at 42 Macro from a portfolio construction perspective. But I am concerned about the spillover to broader financial markets from just investors taking their ball and going home. We've seen this in the active management community um, gearing up for this sort of slowdown. You're seeing it. You saw it in the sector and style factor dispersion for months. Defensive, 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 defensive. Very clear indication that your hedge funds and, and active managers in the mutual fund space were effectively gearing up for this kind of behavior. And I'm not sure that the average investor, unfortunately, uh, in the digital asset ecosystem space, really had a process to see this coming. And it's not that you can you know, predict these sort of one-off events with the Coinbase, you know, taking out everyone's money and going bankrupt potentially or breaking the bucket, um, uh, Tether and Luna and all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's hard to understand this, but what you do know is when growth is slowing and financial market volatility is, is, is high, this is where you start to uncover the bodies. This is when the bodies start washing to the shore. And so we're going to see more of this. We are not yet at the point in the growth and liquidity cycle where it makes sense for large scale capital allocation into these types of assets, into these types of products. And so the likelihood that we actually see more sloppiness, more negative headlines, more volatility uh, is high over the medium term. Yeah. <clears throat> and that is the worry. Um, 
we've got some some great questions. Uh, Casey, Paul, Machio, Jojo in the house. I'm going to get to them all in a second, but uh, I wanted to run a little clip. As, as you know, we've been having the Global Recession Series. Ryle spoke to Gene Munster, head of research at Loop, about the outlook for technology. And this is, I was really interested to hear this because Gene, for those who don't know him, is a, a longtime technology watcher, <clears throat> very familiar with managements, uh, uh, you know, across this space. And uh they were talking about, you know, this sort of pull and push between some of the short-term pain we're seeing and some of the more longer-term trends they believe are still intact. Let's have a listen to the clip. You have to take into effect the macro. And it is, it's not my violent concerto, but I have to take into effect. And I would just uh, maybe draw a line between unapologetically just supporting these tech growth companies, no matter how much they're down, that has not been our approach over the last six months at Loop. We've been uh, pretty heavy in cash. We were 70% in cash uh, coming into the beginning of this year. Now we're 50% in cash. And so we have, uh, we've put money to work and that money has, uh, that has not. Hold on. What made you go 70% cash? Because that's a hell of a ballsy call. Uh, it was. It just. Uh, it felt like uh, things weren't lining up. It had. There was uh, aspects that we saw, and somehow these stocks were moving that reminded me of what happened around 2000, 2001, and it felt like we were in a bubble. And I would just describe it as that uh, companies were just not going up. The valuations weren't going up in lockstep to what was changing the fundamentals. And we have a a process called uh, reverse DCF where we basically calculate what is implied in the growth rate for these companies. And what we are finding is that uh, many of these companies, that many of these tech companies were trading at valuations that would imply 40, 50% growth for the next decade. And the probability of that actually happening that, you know, usually there's like 10 companies in tech out of the 3000 tech companies, 10 of them that actually achieve that. But in this case, we, we had 100 plus type of those uh, companies that were out there. And so that's what got us there was this kind of a, I would describe it as a, a view of the future, but a discipline around valuation. And it was... Uh, by the way, it did not go well at, at first. No, this is a this is one of these career moves. If you're not careful and you get that wrong, everyone's, well, you're going to get fired. And if you get it right, you're a hero. Well, until they forget, which they always do. <laughs> and you can see that full interview on our website uh, and as part of the series as well. Uh, Darius, being disciplined about valuation in tech, that wasn't something we were seeing a lot of, as Gene points out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I have a great chart on sort of quantifying valuation from a macro investor's perspective, because I don't necessarily disagree with the longer term conclusions, although I will say that we are not yet at that point in the process where valuation should be a motivating factor for making uh, new capital allocation decisions. So, uh, Brian, if you don't mind putting up that chart, financial conditions, uh, it's uh, the title of the chart, financial conditions remain uncomfortably loose. Um, and here's why. Uh, the red line in this chart shows the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index uh, without sort of, you know, writing, regurgitating their white paper. It's really just a deviation of all the things that matter from a um, sort of a capitalization standpoint, if you think about companies uh, trying to raise money. So, you know, what's the deviation in the dollar, credit spread, the earnings yield, or, you know, cost of capital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, the, you know, and so it's sort of inverse. It's it's correlated to volatility. It's inversely correlated to the price of the stock market, price of crypto, et cetera. Right now, at the current level, you know, we are as loose from a financial conditions perspective, meaning the Fed is still as easy as we were at the peak of the dot-com bubble. 
And so we haven't seen anything yet as it relates to the ultimate amount of financial tightening we need to see before the Fed is comfortable that it's done enough of a da- done enough damage to the markets and the economy to tame inflation. Um, you know, the black line in this chart shows uh, the S&P 500's earnings yield, next 12 months earnings yield. So what's the uh, the analyst estimate, the consensus estimate for earnings for the market? Um, and then sort of divide that by the price of the market. And as you can see, we're kind of right around where we are and from a financial conditions standpoint. Um, you know, we're nowhere where we were, you know, kind of at the peak, you know, in terms of the peak earnings yield, the peak, the, the kind of the peak cheapness, the peak valuation uh, of the market relative to the last sort of non-recessionary slowdowns. The last two we got uh, were 2015, 16 and 2018. You know, you just look at the levels of where the, those dotted lines are. We have a long way to go to get to a place where the Fed is panicking about financial markets. And so this to me is is, is, is why I say they remain uncomfortably loose because there's, you know, there's kind of a gap between where we are today to where the Fed might feel comfortable pivoting, even in the in the face of of, of high inflation data. Uh, Mike Dean, Adam, FRTC, welcome to the conversation. Let's get through some of these questions, Darius, because they're coming in pretty fast and furious. Uh, Casey from the exchange, I've been looking at food as a proxy to especially gold because you can't eat gold. And banks don't want gold to go up. What mm-hmm. outperforms during a monetary crisis that is also a food crisis? Is it food or assets like gold? Also, it sounds so- like another way to look for a safe haven. Yeah, no, the, the number one asset to, to, to that, that outperforms in crises is, is cash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, be, let's be totally honest with you, right? Like uh, gold, if you pull up a chart of gold, it looks like it's trying to break down. Technically, it is, it's becoming a source of funds because it's done well in the last you know, year or so. And it's been relatively sort of low beta versus a lot of other higher beta risk assets and in investor portfolios. I mean, just kind of, you know, not even going back to the chart, but just, you know, we're coming off an all time low in the financial conditions index and an all-time low in the S&P 500's uh, next 12-month earning deal, which means we were as easy as we've ever been from a Fed policy standpoint. And as a result, markets were as expensive as they've ever been as a function of how easy we were. And so we're all, not we, but a lot of investors are currently looking at price action like today, and they're panicking and saying, okay, either, you know, when do I buy or how much do I need to sell? And the reality is, we're just not close, you know. We're just you got to understand where we are in the growth and inflation cycles in order to anticipate inflections in the liquidity cycle. And according to our analysis, we're at least a quarter away before the Fed can credibly pivot to being dovish, if not two or three. Wow. So Mudshir is asking on the exchange: Do you see the market hitting all-time highs this year, early part of next year? If yes, what do you think the catalyst will be to drive the market up? Because everywhere, everyone is bearish. Isn't that contrarian? Yeah, probably the sometime next year we'll hit all time highs. But here's the problem with uh, even the Fed pivot today. If the Fed were to stop hiking interest rates, pause on their quantitative tightening program before it even began, might I add, you know, what's likely to happen is that you're going to get a valuation premium baked back into most assets. Um, you're going to see, you know, sort of earnings uh, at this, the earnings yield go down. You're going to see multiples expand, et cetera, et cetera. But then we're still going to get to a place where we have a lot of accumulated slowing to do. If you look at the the, the three standard deviation shocks we've seen to the upside in real yields, um, the three standard deviation shock we've seen to the upside in mortgage rates, the three standard deviation shock we've seen to the upside in corporate borrowing costs when you look at the Bloomberg Barclays Index. And so we're going to slow economically no matter what the Fed does um, it, you know, over the next kind of six to nine months. And the reality is just based on where unit labor costs are trending, you know, uh, the 40 year high in unit labor cost inflation, 40 year low in productivity. 
it's suggestive that we're probably heading for an earnings recession anyway. I'm not saying that's the modal outcome, but I definitely believe it's a, you know, more than a one third probability of occurring over the next, you know, several quarters. And so once you get that valuation premium, you got to look around and say, okay, who's the fundamentalist that's going to say this is an appropriate point in time in the cycle to be taking uh, speculative risks? And I still think it's too early for that. Yeah, it's 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 very hard. People are even if even if long term, you could hear the kind of battle because people are looking at some things that look interesting, but the, but just sort of dealing with the market conditions right now seems difficult. To that point, Jojo on the RV side asking, should I add short PSQSH here? In other words, short ETFs. I don't know what PSQEH is. I think is. it's yeah. I think there's uh, it's a short ETF for the QQQ and a short ETF for the S and P oh. five hundred. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So uh, without, you know, giving specific investment advice to the individual, I think if you have the ability to shore, and this was this was part of the opportunity set we flagged to, to, to subscribers this week, the, the the lack of an implied volatility premium in a, in a week like this, or, or i.e. an implied volatility discount, tells you that the demand for near-term downside protection just wasn't there. But obviously, we're seeing a lot of near-term downside in markets. And so, you know, vol, vol products have been generally cheap throughout this entire decline we've seen year to date. And part of the reason for that is, as I mentioned, you know, active managers, hedge funds, mutual funds have really shrunk the amount of risk that they're taking um, to the extent that they can do that. And so they just don't need the, the, the need to hedge is lower from that community. But it's certainly, I would argue, probably rising in terms of the need to hedge for the passive investment community or the community of investors that's only levered long one asset class or a series of assets within an asset class. That, that's a problem. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, Dean from the RV site, dollar question. This is important. If the do- this is interesting too. If the dollar is soaring, but stocks and bonds are both going down, where are the funds entering the country going? Isn't this unusual? I- I've heard some people say when we're talking stocks and bonds, which we tend to do when we're kind of earmarking what happened in the markets, the dollar has been the real story, hasn't it? It's been relentless. Yeah. So the, the funds entering the country can be going to pay back debt. I mean, it's it's not just investors who are controlling the price of the dollar through portfolio funds. It could be companies repatriating dollars from the rest of the world and looking around and saying, hey, this is a scenario that's actually getting worse. Let me bring my money home. If I've generated profits in Europe or generated profits in Asia, you know, now let me let me bring, repatriate those profits so that, you know, the strength in the dollar, the trending strength in the dollar don't, you know, doesn't erode that any more than it already has. And so there's all these sort of funky dynamics in currencies that you can't you never want to you never want to get to the place where you're isolating one variable over another, like interest rate spreads, et cetera. Exactly. And it doesn't mean all those dollars are entering the U.S. and being invested here as well. Um, the simplest transitioning uh, from bank A to bank B on in a different exactly. soil. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Dean, if you're interested, um, go on the site and check out the last uh, conversation or really any of them I had with Jeff Snyder. He talks a lot about the euro dollar market and the sort of rush for collateral and U.S. dollar holdings all around the world. Um, it's dense, but super worth it. So I encourage you to go check that out if you want a little bit more information on that topic. Uh, one, one Adam, quick thing on that, yeah. uh, just the, the whole world is structurally short dollars. There's about 
a let's call it there's 13 or 14 trillion of dollar denominated debt outstanding that's not uh, held by or that's not been issued by U.S. domiciled uh, issuers. And there's a structural sort of one point five to two trillion dollars of debt, dollar denominated debt that they have to roll over that they're short. Uh, that they they sort of finance themselves in shorter term paper markets, which is something that you're, uh, Jeff Snyder uh, is a specialist on. So definitely go check that out. He's he's been one of the thought leaders in this subject. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the reasons that they don't have a lot of confidence in the central bank being able to do anything about it because they don't control this huge shadow banking system of these overseas um, dollars. No one does. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I joke with Jeff every time I talk to him. It's like, you know, the, the Matrix where I'm like entering an alternate world and wondering why I didn't know more about it beforehand. But um, so good stuff for all of you who want more on that. Adam from Red Bank. Uh, are we looking to buy bonds on dips now? If so, what durations do you like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, not absolutely that we're looking to buy bonds on dips now. We're certainly uh, in the process of evaluating whether or not we can start to allocate to duration. And there's a few things that we're looking for specifically to uh, to give us the all clear signal on that. Number one, we want to see this, the momentum of the time series, particularly for the inflation statistics that are correlated to core PCE, like sticky CPI, like median CPI. We want to see that momentum actually break down below the year over year because that'll give us and the Fed confidence that the time series is, is likely to dis- decelerate at a meaningful pace. Obviously, we did not get that in the today's CPI data. Number two, we want to see the inflation uh, momentum and particularly the inflation surprise in Europe uh, start to dissipate. Uh, this is something that we talked about in our macro scouting report yesterday. You know, the, the inflation surprise to the upside in Europe, as measured by the City Inflation Surprise Index, is several orders of magnitude higher than what we've experienced in the U.S. And as a function of that, we've seen a much more sort of forceful move higher in in in, in bond yields uh, in Europe, and and that you know continues to go uh, unabated. And so that's part of one of the reasons we're seeing such weakness in the Treasury market is because you've had a significant repricing in duration risk across the pond, and obviously all these things are correlated. The same insurers, pension funds, et cetera, are, are investing in all these types of securities on a, on a, on a currency hedge basis. And then lastly, we want to start to see it in the market. Um, right now, if you the, you know, we probably have of the 42 market signals in our global macro risk matrix that we use to now cast the market regime, about half of them are about fi- a fixed income or, or sort of um, could be a fixed income type securities or expressions. And nothing thus far is signaling that we're finally getting to a place where it's safe to buy bonds. We're waiting on uh, one of those key markets to signal to give us the all clear signal. So definitely uh, stay tuned for that. Mm. Tim from Long Island on the RV site. VIX down pretty big uh, or on a pretty big down day. Does it mean anything? Thoughts? Yeah, no, it just it, it, look, it means that the demand for volatility products is low because the people who would typically demand those types of products um, and, and take advantage of them, hedge funds uh, in particular, have taken their ball and gone home. And this is the problem. Right. And this is, you know, this is probably a story for another longer form discussion. This flow of funds into passive securities, passive investment exposures, yeah, I think it's somewhere around $1.9 trillion last year, which is more than the last 20 years combined or something like that. Don't quote me on that specific number, but it's a very big number. I know I remember that it's more than the last 20 years combined. You have so many investors who are basically making a quote unquote passive bet, but it's not passive. It's an actively managed bet that the Federal Reserve is going to continue expanding its balance sheet alongside the balance sheet of every global central bank uh, in the world. Brian, if you pull up this chart before we go, uh, global liquidity. Um, that chart, global liquidity, just shows the um, the blue line shows the, the G5 central bank balance sheet uh, on trillions of dollars. It's somewhere around $31 trillion now. The red line shows 
the global equity market cap. So it's US, China, Japan, Europe, et cetera, et cetera, uh, in trillions of dollars. And, and, and tell me if that's not the same chart. You know, this is going back to 2009, looking at this chart. And so it's telling you, if you're a passive investor, you're making an actively managed decision that the blue line is going to continue higher. And the rest of us who are actively managed investors, who are thoughtful and thinking about the cycle, understand that that blue line has to go down, certainly in dollar terms uh, for the foreseeable future, at least in terms of the forecastable future. And so that's an issue. Yeah. Amazing stuff, as usual, Darius. I just want to point out uh, to FR, TC, uh, there's uh, Mike, I think, from YouTube. A few different questions on crypto. Uh, not sure if you were in the show when Ash was on a little bit earlier, but Ash is kicking off at Twitter Spaces right now as we speak, and they're going to do a deep dive into everything happening there around there and implications for the rest of the market around uh, the, the Terra Stable coin UST. So I encourage you to go over there and check it out um, and post some of your questions. I, I think they might find an answer there because we're out of time. But Darius, always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. These are really hard markets to navigate. So hopefully people are you know, getting some sort of sound advice and um, guidance on what to think about. Um, and your point about you know, being in a passive fund or being passive about it is, is a managed decision, I think is a really, really important one to think about right now. You can't just close your eyes. You got to try to sort of understand what's happening and protect yourself as best as possible. So we appreciate it as always. Of course. Can I make one final comment before sure. we go? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I heard, uh, I want to say George Noble, uh, great Twitter. Uh, go check him out on Twitter. He made a great comment in a podcast I was listening to recently. He said, you know, what's a stock that's down 90%? It's a stock that was down 80% and got cut in half from there. Mm-hmm. You know, the percentage change math is always not, is never working in your favor when you start suffering drawdowns. And so, you know, rather than sort of you know, I know I probably sound a little bit excited and and, and, and and heated up, but what I really want people to take away from these discussions, um, and I'm going to be every Wednesday to help everyone through this bear market, is you always have an opportunity to realign your portfolio for the next probable outcome. You don't want to ever just sit there and say, well, I'm down 40 percent and I'm just going to ride it out because you can be down 50 percent from that 40 percent to get to down 50, right? You know what I mean? And so this is this is my my I want everyone to understand that, hey, look, you always have an opportunity to make a better decision than the one you came into today with. And that's what we call next play at 42 Macro. Right. And um, there's that there that old uh, chestnut that you make sense on the way up and lose dollars on the way down, too. Right. It's hard to recover from those really big drawdowns. So, um, uh, you know, all, all of those lessons hard learned by people who've been doing it for for uh, have experience, been doing it for years. Um, we should be paying attention to right now. So, Darius, appreciate you helping us do that. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Well, we're 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 gonna go try to hop on uh, Ash's Twitter Spaces. Thanks again for watching the daily briefing, and Ash will be back tomorrow with Imran Laka. So be sure to join for that. Take care and good yep. luck out there. Cheers. It's a really complicated world out there. We've got massive inflation. Recession fears, war in Europe, COVID, China issues. What the hell's happening? Everyone's got an opinion, but who's right, who's wrong? As co-founder of Real Vision, I've got my own view, but maybe I'm wrong too. And I want to go and find out more from real experts, real in-depth analysis. And I've hand-chosen my experts for this two-week journey of discovery in global recession. Is everyone wrong? I've chosen people like Peter Zihan to talk to him about geopolitics, 
David Rosenberg about the economy, and Pierre Andran, the world's most famous energy trader, about how to navigate the oil markets and where it's all going. This starts on May the 2nd, and I'm going to learn so much about what really is going on and how to best navigate it. Yes, not everybody's going to be saying the same thing, but it's going to allow me to piece together an investment framework to navigate these complicated times. Now, normally we give you seven day trial for one dollar, but because this is so important for all of you, and I think it's one of the most important pieces of content we've ever done, we're extending that free trial for two weeks for one dollar. So you get the entire campaign of all of these great minds. And it's only one dollar for all of this. So just go to realvision.com forward slash global recession to find out more and join me as I try and figure out what the hell's going on. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.